Chapter 18, Part 5 of Volume 2 of A Popular History of France from the Earliest Times. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Morgan Scorpion. Volume 2 of A Popular History of France from the Earliest Times by Francois Guizot. Translated by Robert Black. Chapter 18. The Kingship in France, Part 5. Throughout all France, and even outside of France, the passions of religion and ambition were aroused at this summons to the crusade against the Albigensians. Twelve abbots and twenty monks of Citeaux dispersed themselves in all directions preaching the crusade, and lords and knights, burghers and peasants, laymen and clergy, hastened to respond. From near and far they came, says the contemporary poet-chronicler William of Tudela, there be men from Auvergne and Burgundy, France and Limousin, there be men from all the world, there be Germans, Poitevins, Gascons, Rouergas, and Saint-Anguez. Never did God make scribe who, whatsoever his pains, could set them all down in writing, in two months or in three. The poet reckons, Twenty thousand horsemen armed at all points, and more than two hundred thousand villains and peasants, not to speak of burghers and clergy. A less exaggerative, though more fanatical writer, Peter of val the chief contemporary chronicle of this crusade, contents himself with saying that, at the siege of Carcassonne, one of the first operations of the crusaders, it was said that their army numbered fifty thousand men. Whatever may be the truth about the numbers, the crusaders were passionately ardent and persevering. The war against the Albigensians lasted fifteen years, from 1208 to 1223, and of the two leading spirits, one ordering and the other executing, Pope Innocent III and Simon de Montfort, neither saw the end of it. During these fifteen years, in the region situated between the Rhone, the Pyrenees and the Garonne, and even the Dordogne, nearly all the towns and strong castles, Béziers, Carcassonne, Cassonodui, Lavaux, Gailac, Marseille, Minerve, Term, Toulouse, etc., were taken, lost, retaken, given over to pillage, sack, and massacre, and burnt by the crusaders with all the cruelty of fanatics and all the greed of conquerors. We do not care to dwell here in detail upon this tragical and monotonous history. We will simply recall some few of its characteristics. Doubt has been thrown upon the answer attributed to Arnaud Almery, abbot of Citeaux, when he was asked in 1209 by the conquerors of Béziers how, at the assault of the city, they should distinguish the heretics from the faithful. Slay them all. God will be sure to know his own. The doubt is more charitable than reasonable, for it is a contemporary, himself a monk of Citeaux, who reports without any comment this hateful speech. Simon de Montfort, the hero of the crusade, employed similar language, one day two heretics, taken at Castra, were brought before him. One of them was unshakable in his belief. The other expressed a readiness to turn convert. "'Burn them both,' said the Count. "'If this fellow mean what he says, the fire will serve for expiation of his sins, and if he lie, he will suffer the penalty for his imposture.' At the siege of the castle of Lavaux in 1211, Amory, lord of Montreal, and eighty knights, had been made prisoners. And the noble Count Simon, says Peter of Volsenay, decided to hang them all on one gibbet. But when Omori, the most distinguished among them, had been hanged, the gallows-poles, 
which from too great haste had not been firmly fixed in the ground, having come down, the Count, perceiving how great was the delay, ordered the rest to be slain. The pilgrims therefore fell upon them right eagerly, and slew them on the spot. Further, the Count caused stones to be heaped upon the lady of the castle, Amory's sister, a very wicked heretic, who had been cast into a well. Finally, our crusaders, with extreme alacrity, burned heretics without number. In the midst of these atrocious unbridlements of passions supposed to be religious, other passions were not slow to make their appearance. Innocent III had promised the crusaders the sovereignty of the domains they might win by conquest from princes who were heretics or protectors of heretics. After the capture in 1209 of Béziers and Carcassonne, possessions of Raymond Roger, Viscount of Albi, and nephew of the Count of Toulouse, the abbot of Citeaux, a legate of the Pope, assembled the principal chiefs of the crusaders that they might choose one amongst them as lord and governor of their conquests. The offer was made successively to Eude, Duke of Burgundy, to Peter de Courtenay, Count of Neva, and to Walter de Chatillon, Count of St. Paul, but they all three declined, saying that they had sufficient domains of their own without usurping those of the Viscount of Beziers, to whom, in their opinion, they had already caused enough loss. The legate, somewhat embarrassed, it is said, proposed to appoint two bishops and four knights who, in concert with him, should choose a new master for the conquered territories. The proposal was agreed to, and after some moments of hesitation, Simon de Montfort, being elected by this committee, accepted the proffered domains, and took immediate possession of them, on publication of a charter conceived as follows. Simon, Lord of Montfort, Earl of Leicester, Viscount of Beziers and Carcassonne, the Lord having delivered unto my hands the lands of the heretics and unbelieving people, that is to say, whatsoever he hath thought fit to take from them by the hands of the crusaders, his servants, I have accepted, humbly and devoutly, this charge and administration with confidence in his aid. The Pope wrote to him forthwith to confirm him in hereditary possession of his new dominions, at the same time expressing to him a hope that, in concert with the legates, he would continue to carry out the extirpation of the heretics. The dispossessed Viscount, Raymond Roger, having been put in prison by his conqueror in a tower of Carcassonne itself, died there at the end of three months, of disease according to some, and a violent death according to others, but the latter appears to be a groundless suspicion, for it was not to cowardly and secret crimes that Simon de Montfort was inclined. From this time forth the war in southern France changed character, or rather it assumed a double character, with the war of religion was openly joined a war of conquest. It was no longer merely against the Albigensians and their heresies, it was against the native princes of southern France and their domains that the crusade was prosecuted. Simon de Montfort was eminently qualified to direct and accomplish this twofold design. Sincerely fanatical and passionately ambitious, of a valour that knew no fatigue, handsome and strong, combining tact with authority, pitiless towards his enemies as became his mission of doing justice in the name of the faith and the church, a leader faithful to his friends, and devoted to their common cause, whilst reckoning upon them for his own private purposes, he possessed those natural qualities which confer spontaneous empire over men, and those abilities which lure them on by opening a way for the fulfilment of their interested hopes. And as for himself, by the stealthy growth of selfishness, which is so prone to become developed when circumstances are tempting, he every day made his personal fortunes of greater and greater account in his views and his conduct. 
His ambitious appetite grew by the very difficulties it encountered, as well as by the successes it fed upon. The Count of Toulouse, persecuted and despoiled, complained loudly in the ears of the Pope, protested against the charge of favouring the heretics, offered and actually made the concessions demanded by Rome, and as security gave up seven of his principal strongholds. But, being ever too irresolute and too weak to keep his engagements to his subjects' detriment, no less than to stand out against his adversary's requirements, he was continually falling back into the same condition, and keeping up attacks which were more and more urgent by promises which always remained without effect. Having sent to Rome embassy upon embassy with explanations and excuses, he twice went thither himself, in 1210 and in 1215, the first time alone, the second with his young son, who was then thirteen, and who was at a later period Raymond the Seventh, He appealed to the Pope's sense of justice, he repudiated the stories and depicted the violence of his enemies, and finally pleaded the rights of his son, innocent of all that was imputed to himself, and yet similarly attacked and despoiled. Innocent the Third had neither a narrow mind nor an unfeeling heart. He listened to the father's pleading, took an interest in the youth, and wrote in April 1212 and January 1213, to his legates in Languedoc, and to Simon de Montfort. After having led the army of the Crusaders into the domains of the Count of Toulouse, ye have not been content with invading all the places wherein there were heretics, but ye have further gotten possession of those wherein there was no suspicion of heresy. The same ambassadors have objected to us that ye have usurped what was another's with so much greed and so little consideration, that of all the domains of the Count of Toulouse there remains to him barely the town of that name, together with the castle of Montauban. Now, though the said Count has been found guilty of many matters against God and against the Church, and our legates, in order to force him to acknowledgment thereof, have excommunicated his person, and have left his domains to the first captor, nevertheless he has not yet been condemned as a heretic, nor as an accomplice in the death of Peter de Castelnau, of sacred memory, albeit he is strongly suspected thereof. That is why we did ordain that if there should appear against him a proper accuser within a certain time, there should be appointed him a day for clearing himself, according to the form pointed out in our letters, reserving to ourselves the delivery of a definitive sentence thereupon, in all which the procedure hath not been according to our orders. We wot not, therefore, on what ground we could yet grant to others his dominions, which have not been taken away either from him or from his heirs, and above all, we would not appear to have fraudulently extorted from him the castles he hath committed to us, the will of the Apostle being, that we should refrain from even the appearance of wrong. But Innocent the Third forgot that, in the case of either temporal or spiritual sovereigns, when there has once been an appeal to force, there is no stopping, at pleasure and within specified limits, the movement that has been set going and the agents which have the work in hand. He had decreed war against the princes who were heretics or protectors of heretics, and he had promised their domains to their conquerors. He meant to reserve to himself the right of pronouncing definitive judgment as to the condemnation of princes as heretics, and as to dispossessing them of their dominions. But when force had done its business on the very spot, when the condemnation of the princes as heretics had been pronounced by the Pope's legates, and their bodily dispossession effected by his laic allies, the reserves and regrets of Innocent the Third were vain. He had proclaimed two principles— the bodily extirpation of the heretics, and the political dethronement of the princes who were their accomplices or protectors, but the application of the principles slipped out of his own hands. Three local councils assembled in 1210, 1212, and 1213, at St. Gilles, at Arles, and at Lavar, 
and presided over by the Pope's legates, proclaimed the excommunication of Raymond VI, and the cession of his dominions to Simon de Montfort, who took possession of them for himself and his comrades. Nor were the Pope's legates without their share in the conquest. Arnold Ormery, abbot of Citeaux, became Archbishop of Narbonne, and abbot Fouque of Marseille, celebrated in his youth as a gallant troubadour, was Bishop of Toulouse and the most ardent of the Crusaders. When these conquerors heard that the Pope had given a kind reception to Raymond VI and his young son, and lent a favourable ear to their complaints, they sent haughty warnings to Innocent III, giving him to understand that the work was all over, and that, if he meddled, Simon de Montfort and his warriors might probably not bow to his decisions. Don Pedro II, King of Aragon, had strongly supported before Innocent III the claims of the Count of Toulouse and of the southern princes his allies. He cajoled the Lord Pope, says the prejudiced chronicler of these events, the monk Peter of Valsernay, so far as to persuade him that the cause of the faith was achieved against the heretics, they being put to distant flight and completely driven from the Albigensian country, and that accordingly it was necessary for him to revoke altogether the indulgence he had granted to the crusaders. The sovereign pontiff, too credulously listening to the perfidious suggestions of the said king, readily assented to his demands, and wrote to the Count of Montfort, with orders and commands to restore without delay of the Counts of Comanges and of Foix, and to Gaston of Beam, very wicked and abandoned people, the lands which, by just judgment of God and by the aid of the Crusaders, he at last had conquered. But in spite of his desire to do justice, Innocent III, studying policy rather than moderation, did not care to enter upon a struggle against the agents, ecclesiastical and laic, whom he had let loose upon southern France. In November 1215, the Fourth Lateran Council met at Rome, and the Count of Toulouse, his son, and the Count of Foix brought their claims before it. It is quite true, says Peter of Volsernay, that they found there, and what is worse among the prelates, certain folk who opposed the cause of the faith, and laboured for the restoration of the said counts, but the council of Ahitophel did not prevail, for the Lord Pope, in agreement with the greater and saner part of the council, decreed that the city of Toulouse and other territories conquered by the Crusaders should be ceded to the Count of Montfort, who, more than any other, had borne himself right valiantly and loyally in the holy enterprise. And as for the domains which Count Raymond possessed in Provence, the southern pontiff decided that they should be reserved to him in order to make provision, either with part or even the whole, for the son of this count, provided always that, by sure signs of fealty and good behaviour, he should show himself worthy of compassion. This last inclination towards compassion on the part of the Pope in favour of the young Count Raymond, provided he showed himself worthy of it, remained as fruitless as the remonstrances addressed to his legates. For on the 17th of July, 1216, seven months after the Lateran Council, Innocent III died, leaving Simon de Montfort and his comrades in possession of all they had taken, and the war still raging between the native princes of southern France and the foreign conquerors. The primitive religious character of the crusade wore off more and more. Worldly ambition and the spirit of conquest became more and more predominant, and the question lay far less between Catholics and heretics than between the old and new masters of the country, between the independence of the southern people and the triumph of warriors come from the north of France, that is to say, between two different races, civilizations, and languages. Raymond VI and his son recovered thenceforth certain supports and opportunities of which hitherto the accusation of heresy and the judgments of the court of Rome had robbed them. Their neighbouring allies and their secret or intimidated partisans took fresh courage, and the fortune of battle became shifty. 
successes and reverses were shared by both sides, and not only many small places and castles, but the largest towns, Toulouse amongst others, fell into the hands of each party alternately. Innocent III's successor in the Holy See, Pope Honorius III, though at first very pronounced in his opposition to the Albigensians, had less ability, less perseverance, and less influence than his predecessor. Finally, on the 12th of June, 1218, Simon de Montfort, who had been for nine months unsuccessfully besieging Toulouse, which had again come into the possession of Raymond VI, was killed by a shower of stones under the walls of the place, and left to his son Armory the inheritance of his war and his conquests, but not of his vigorous genius and his warlike renown. The struggle still dragged on for five years with varied fortune on each side. But Armory de Montfort was losing ground every day, and Raymond VI, when he died in August 1222, had recovered the greater part of his dominions. His son, Raymond VII, continued the war for eighteen months longer, with enough of popular favour and success to make his enemies despair of recovering their advantages. And, on the 14th of January, 1224, Armory de Montfort, after having concluded with the Counts of Toulouse and Foix a treaty which seemed to have only a provisional character, went forth, says the history of Languedoc, with all the French from Carcassonne, and left for ever the country which his house had possessed for nearly fourteen years. Scarcely had he arrived at the court of Louis the Eighth, who had just succeeded his father, Philip Augustus, when he ceded to the King of France his rights over the domains which the Crusaders had conquered by a deed conceived in these terms. Know that we give up to our Lord Louis, the illustrious King of the French, and to his heirs for ever, to dispose of, according to their pleasure, all the privileges and gifts that the Roman Church did grant unto our father Simon of pious memory, in respect of the countship of Toulouse and other districts in Albergois. Supposing that the Pope do accomplish all the demands made to him by the king through the Archbishop of Bourges, and the Bishop of Langres and Chartres, else, be it known for certain, that we cede not to any one aught of all of these domains. While this cruel war lasted, Philip Augustus would not take any part in it, not that he had any leaning towards the Albigensian heretics on the score of creed or religious liberty, but his sense of justice and moderation was shocked at the violence employed against them, and he had a repugnance of the idea of taking part in the devastation of the beautiful southern provinces. He took it ill, moreover, that the Pope should arrogate to himself the right of despoiling of their dominions, on the ground of heresy, princes who were vassals of the King of France, and, without offering any formal opposition, he had no mind to give his assent thereto. When Innocent III called upon him to cooperate in the crusade, Philip answered that he had at his flanks two huge and terrible lions, the Emperor Otho and King John of England, who were working with all their might to bring trouble upon the kingdom of France, that consequently he had no inclination at all to leave France or even to send his son, but it seemed to him enough for the present if he allowed his barons to march against the disturbers of peace and of the faith in the province of Narbonne. In 1213, when Simon de Montfort had gained the Battle of Muret, Philip allowed Prince Louis to go and look on when possession was taken of Toulouse by the Crusaders. But when Louis came back and reported to his father, in the presence of the princes and barons who were, for the most part, relatives and allies of Count Raymond, the great havoc committed by Count Simon in the city after surrender, the king withdrew to his apartments without any ado beyond saying to those present, Sirs, I have yet hoped that before very long Count de Montfort and his brother Guy will die at their work, for God is just, and will suffer these counts to perish thereat. 
because their quarrel is unjust. Nevertheless, at a little later period when the crusade was at its greatest heat, Philip, on the Pope's repeated entreaty, authorized his son to take part in it with such lords as might be willing to accompany him, but he ordered that the expedition should not start before the spring, and, on the occurrence of some fresh incident, he had it further put off until the following year. He received visits from Count Raymond VI, and openly testified good will towards him. When Simon de Montfort was decisively victorious, and in possession of the places wrested from Raymond, Philip Augustus recognized accomplished facts, and received the new Count of Toulouse as his vassal. But when, after the death of Simon de Montfort and Innocent III, the question was once more thrown open, and when Raymond VI, first and then his son Raymond VII, had recovered the greater part of their dominions, Philip formally refused to recognize Armory de Montfort as successor to his father's conquests. Nay, he did more. He refused to accept the cession of those conquests, offered to him by Amari de Montfort, and pressed upon him by Pope Honorius III. Philip Augustus was not a scrupulous sovereign, nor disposed to compromise himself for the mere sake of defending justice and humanity. But he was too judicious not to respect and protect, to a certain extent, the rights of his vassals as well as his own, and at the same time, too discreet to involve himself without necessity in a barbarous and dubious war. He held aloof from the crusade against the Albigensians with as much wisdom, and more than as much dignity, as he had displayed seventeen years before, in withdrawing from the crusade against the Saracens. End of chapter 18, part 5